Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, as you know, we are in a series on the Psalms this morning, uh, and um, during the month of October, there's been a kind of special focus on Psalms that were important during the Reformation, this being one of them. We'll get to it in just a moment. Um, that is Psalm 43, if you want to go there now, and it'll also be on the screen. Sorry, I'm in Isaiah 43. I was looking at it thinking that doesn't look right. Here we are. All right. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. Martin Luther called the book of Psalms, the the Psalter, uh, he, he called it a little Bible, because he said you can find all the great doctrines of the faith contained therein, in the Psalms. Not so much plainly stated like a systematic theology as beautifully and poetically sung. And the second reason why we're studying the Psalms. One is because, again, the little Bible thing I find very, a very useful way to think about what we're singing together. The second reason we're studying the Psalms is because these songs <coughs> excuse me, are written in part at least to help you understand your own heart. Because no matter whether you've experienced love or anger or joy or despair or any, any bit on the spectrum of emotion, the Psalms address that condition of the soul whatever the condition of the soul that you might be in this morning, they address it, they answer it, they give you a language to talk about it, they teach you how to talk about it. And also how to sing about it. But also how to pray about it. How to take it to God Himself. Some of you might know what a uh, uh, physician's desk reference is. It's a, it's a massive tome that, that doctors use. I'm sure they're digitized now, surely. Yeah. Uh, they were huge. They were like gigantic books that um, you can look up a particular condition of the body by, by symptom, and the manual gives some direction for treatment and medication and so on, right? Did I get that pretty much right? You're talking about different, the, the drug reference. Ah, the drug reference. My bad. This is, this is live uh, uh, correction as we go. I like it. No, I'm, I'm here for it. It's good. Okay, the, the Psalms are like that, except, uh, except Instead of a manual so for things affecting the body, it's a manual for things affecting the soul, if you like, and also much, much less boring than a manual because it's a book of poetry. It's not a technical book, but uh, Tim Keller has called the Psalter a manual for doctors of the soul, where very often you're presented in the Psalms with a condition of soul and then guided through the proper treatment. How to sing about it, how to pray about it, how to talk about it, even how to feel about it. So what condition, what is the condition that the psalmist is experiencing? Not really the condition of circumstances here. We actually aren't given much information about circumstances in Psalm 43. 
but the condition of his heart we're given a great deal of information about. He has a divided heart, the psalmist does. Look, look with me, will you, at the, at the text. He starts off, vindicate me, O God, and then in verse 2, you're the God in whom I take refuge, where are you then? Okay? You're the God in whom I take refuge, why have you rejected me? But then the other half of the psalm is him saying that this God, right, this rejecting God is apparently his exceeding joy. Well, which is it? Well, it's, it's both. It's this divided heart. So look at verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I'll praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Then he starts preaching to himself at the end. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. What, what's going on here? It almost sounds like, like high emotional instability. I'm angry. Now I'm sad. Now I'm hopeful. Now I'm joyful. Now I'm downcast. Why am I downcast? I will be happy. <laughs> it's like, wow, David, you need to get on some medication, man. Balance you out. Is it really so unfamiliar, though, to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. To say, when I do good, when I want to do good, there's the evil, right? That, that I don't want to do, but it's, it's, it's right beside me, tempting me. Who will deliver me? Is it really so unfamiliar to feel anxious and hopeful all at once in a way that maybe confuses you a little? As it turns out, there are psalms for that. And so let's talk about Psalm 43. First of all, I, I begin by admitting... It's kind of an awkward thing to preach because Psalm 43 is really so connected to Psalm 42 because they're sort of meant to go together. I will be coming back to 42 at another point uh, after October. But I want to give attention to this psalm about God bringing forth light and truth, vindicating a noble cause, was actually one that became very important during the Reformation for pretty obvious reasons, right? Vindicate this cause, O God, as we want Your Word to be in the hands of Your people and evil and lying men are coming against us. The cry for vindication against evil and unjust men. David is afflicted. I'm assuming it's David. By the way, if you hear me say that, you know, it's, it's, it's the psalmist. It's da- it doesn't say David, but a lot of them are by David. Uh, so just maybe out of habit, you might hear me say David. But he knows that the solution to the affliction from his enemies is what? Well, the text says the light and truth of God. The light and truth of God, which makes sense because if you look at verse 1, what is he asking for deliverance from? The deceitful and unjust man. So instead of deceit and lies, I need your light and truth. You don't have to think too long then before you begin to see the the Reformation parallels anyway. So let's look at verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. David cries out to God, demanding that God vindicate him because his cause is the right one. Now that sounds kind of bold, don't it? David is saying in the middle of this terrible affliction that I'm in, I'm in the right. So I'm asking you, Almighty God, to treat me like I'm in the right. Now we don't usually talk like that. We don't usually pray like that. Usually when there's a way, at least I've seen this, heard this, I've I've done it myself, when when there's some kind of way in which we've been wronged or mistreated, 
we are kind of trained, I think, as, as uh, American evangelicals to say, Lord, even if I think I'm right, I'm pretty sure there's probably some of my sin mixed in there, so maybe I'm not as right as I think I am, so just let your will be done, amen. Right? Now, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I mean, there's, there's humility there in a prayer like that. I'm just saying it's not what the psalmist prays. And so I would offer to you, you know, if, if it gets tricky, like well, when, when do we apply something like this? And I mean... <laughs> The, the answer that's not going to satisfy some of you is when we know we're right. And that, what I mean by that is when, when the Word of God says something and we act on it according to the Word of God, not according to vain imaginations or the things that we like to construct and do, but when God has said and we say yes and amen and then we act and then evil comes against us, we say, God, let people see that you mean what you say. There's a humility there then that's noble when, you say, when we say something like, you know, there's some of my sin mixed in here too. And I'm never going to discourage you to be, I'm never going to encourage you to be less aware of your sinfulness. And whenever you're mistreated or wronged, because of the name of Jesus, you should count it all joy. That's what Jesus says. But when times come, when a time comes where you can go to God and say, as long as men are lying about me and what I say, they're lying about you. Which, which, again, you want to exercise very carefully. But if you have said, for instance, that the way that God has constructed humanity and man and woman is good, right? And everyone laughs and mocks you, vindicate me, O God. David is saying, defeat these enemies, Lord, give me victory. And it's not a wrong thing to pray. It's not a wrong thing to pray that God rescues you from your enemies, whether they are people or natural disaster or crumbling infrastructure because of evil and stupid men or disease, declining health. When evil people say things like Christians are liars and marriage doesn't actually work, marriage is signing up for misery without purpose or conclusion. Vindicate us, O God. Or when people say, don't pay attention to passages in the Bible about marriages and husbands and wives and headship and submission and love and respect. Those things only lead to evil, right? Vindicate me, O God. Or when people say, life is better without children. I heard this one recently. Children are nothing but a burden and an expense. Don't listen to Christians when they say that the family's good and glorious. Burn all your money on yourself instead. Vindicate us, O God. Or when people say, don't listen to God's Word, when He tells you how He's designed the world. That you can actually be content even if your impulses go unfulfilled. You know, we we know better. Freud sorted that out. In response, we should say, vindicate us, O God. Deliver us from liars. Do I pray also for their salvation? You bet. Absolutely. Because I've got a God who saves liars, starting with me. But in the meanwhile... I do want him to silence them for the sake of my neighbor and his children. But there's another reason why you should be greatly encouraged by David's cry for vindication. He says, vindicate me, O God. And then in verse 2, look at it. For, so here's the reason, vindicate me because you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Now think about that for just a minute. When we, when we walked through, you know, some weeks back, we went through Psalm 13 and Psalm 22. We learned that these, there are these psalms of lament, right? Where we, we cry out to God, basically saying, God, where are you? And if you've been a Christian for more than like a couple of years, 
If that, you, you know that God will take His people through dark and difficult valleys. And that more than a few Christians have experienced in those times what, what we can only call a, I mean, a, a sense of divine forsakenness, that God has left the building. It doesn't mean you have been forsaken, but I, the, the, the burden in your heart is that you have been just as surely as you feel pain when you get hit. There's some really good news this morning. David prays, vindicate me for I am in the right. And then, God, why are you so far off? In the same prayer. That is very, very, very important. I don't think I memorized enough varies. But it's really important, okay? That vindicate me because I'm in the right and why are you so far off is in the same prayer. That means... Okay, sometimes when you walk through seasons where God seems far off from your cries. And look, sometimes that's because of sin, but sometimes it is absolutely, absolutely not. That's what the book of Job's about. But here's David saying, Oh God, you are very far off, and you're almost waiting. I must have done something wrong. On the contrary, why are you far off? I'm in the right. Can those two things go together? Yes, they can. We both, he's saying, Lord, we, we both know what's going on. Why then are you so far away from me? I've been following you. I've been walking after you. I've been telling people of your greatness. I've been writing songs that your people sing. This is important because if someone you know is walking through a season of what we might call spiritual depression, or if you are, you probably tend to immediately assume it's because of sin. And that is a possibility, okay? If someone comes to me for counseling, struggling with a kind of spiritual depression, I'm going to ask along the way if you violated your conscience or disobeyed God. That's part of the diagnostic process, if you like. But the quickest way to put, because the quickest way to put real distance between you and God is to indulge in sin and for it to remain unconfessed and go unaddressed and so on. But the whole reason why David in this is, is writing in the midst of this predicament. He's at odds with an ungodly people, liars and deceitful men. And yet, and yet he says, vindicate me, right? Or not, and yet. He says, vindicate me, but then why are you so far off? These two going together. So what do we do with moments like this in the Psalms? David is saying, even though you feel far off, I think a way to put it is he's, he's saying, I'm in the right and I need you to make it obvious for the sake of your own justice. I need you to deliver me and clear me of blame. So what's the solution then? What is the solution to, again, the predicament that David's in? We'll look at verse 3. Send out your armies and slaughter all of them. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says. Okay? You're with me? Verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. David, after pleading with God, lifts up his eyes and says, I need two things here if I'm going to make it. Your light and your truth. Your light and your truth. This is David's plea. What does that mean? In short, it means he's crying out for God's promises that are going to hold him steady. He pleads for God's light and truth, which is two ways of saying the same thing. God's truth that illuminates our darkness. 
Later on in the Psalter, the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Send forth your light, right? So why, why does David need God's truth? Why does David need the truth of God's word? Because he's already told us the problem is liars in verse 1 and 2. And so against the lies that are surrounding me, creating a kind of confusion and darkness around me, I need the Word of God to explode with such brightness that it makes the liars stagger and squint. But don't miss this. God's light and God's truth are meant to take David somewhere. Did you see it? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. So, David says in the midst of his confusion, Lord, I need, you to, f- I, I need to find you. So, send forth your light and your truth so that I can find the way home back to worship with your people. What? Well, David, I mean, David's struggling here. Vindicate me, O God, and evil and deceitful men. Right? So, why does he want to go worship at the holy hill, dwelling, altar of God, etc.? Doesn't David know you can worship God anywhere? Well, yeah. We have to understand what David means here. When David talks about the altar of God, he was talking about the temple. And in the ancient world, a temple was not just a building. It was where the gods met with people. And basically, uh, Yahweh took that concept and refashioned it such to suit his own purposes uh, in, the, in the Old Covenant. And to be clear, our understanding is that in the New Covenant... The veil has torn, right? On this side of the cross of Jesus Christ today, we know where the altar of God is. It's not in the temple. It's not in any house made with hands. Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Our altar is Jesus Christ crucified and risen, standing before the throne of God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Christ our high priest, Christ our sacrifice, Christ our altar. Now, it it doesn't mean, though, that David's solution, if you like, is somehow less powerful or less right today. In fact, don't forget that the letter to the Hebrews, which I just quoted from, was written to a church to be read aloud in the assembly. Some scholars even believe that the book of Hebrews is basically a sermon on Psalm 110. Kind of a cool idea, but maybe we'll toy with that someday but if if anything when we gather together to feast on bread and wine to renew our covenant with god the presence of god in our midst is 10 times more potent than anything david ever dreamed of my point is that if you were to ask david david man why do you feel like you need to go to god's altar and god's temple don't you know you can worship god anywhere He might begin by saying, of course I know I can worship God anywhere. Keep reading your psalms and you'll see at least one that I prayed when I was in the middle of the wilderness being chased by Saul. But David is not the one who's ignorant here. We are. We we get kind of saturated with, with individualism that we forget what David knows. And that is, you cannot know God and rest in all of the securities, the security of all of His promises as a lone ranger. Right? When people ask me, Pastor Brian, can I be a Christian 
without ever going to church? My answer is not for very long. Okay? The animal that gets taken out by the predator is always the one that gets isolated from the pack. David knew this. And in the midst of his hardship and his terrible circumstances, he said, I need the festive throng of the people of God. I need the body. I need to be part of the assembled people. Part of David's despondency, likely, was that he was experiencing what we might call community deprivation. Many of you know that I am fond of frequently quoting C.S. Lewis in sermons. Some of you might think I overquote Lewis, but when I stop finding ageless brilliance in his work, I will stop quoting him, and not a second before. He said this in The Four Loves. He talked about two of his really close friends. One was named Ronald, and the other was named Charles, the three of them being mutual friends. Lewis said that when Charles died, he expected... Kind of like, he, he would get to know a whole lot more about Ronald. His friendship with Ronald would grow in ways it couldn't before, because, you know, it was the three of them, now it's just the two of them. But he said, I found out to my surprise, I didn't actually get more of Ronald. It wasn't that now that Charles was dead, I get more of Ronald. I actually have less of him because Charles brought something out of Ronald that I, that I couldn't. Lewis realized that it actually took all three of them to, to maximize the relational connections, if you like. In other words, sometimes it takes a group of people to get to know a person. Hmm? So, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. David understands that the trial and the tribulation and the sense that you're being unjustly treated tend to make God's promises harder for you to hear. You begin to doubt what God has said to you. You begin to doubt that He is all that He promises to be for you in Jesus. And in in response, David reminds himself, verse 5, and all of us, that the solution to spiritual wrestling is not to suffer in isolated silence, but to go to God Himself. To join God's people and go to God Himself. And He goes to the right God. (laughs) I mean, so do you understand? Suffering can give you a false picture of your God. Because suffering starts making you ask some questions. Does He love me? Does He care? Is He still here? Is He ignoring me? There's time for all those questions. They're all over the Psalter. But how does David fight against his spiritual despondency. He fights with what he knows to be true about his God. I will go to God. Not God of my misery, God of my abandonment, God of my isolation, but I will go to God my exceeding joy. That's who my God is. And so I want you to see something here. That in the midst of trial and affliction and unjust treatment and all the pain that can come from that and with that, you aren't just fighting for your joy. Your joy isn't simply something behind you that you're defending. (coughs) David's example here is to fight with your joy. You hold on to a glad spirit and a hopeful heart and you fight by preaching to yourself again and again and again like David does in verse 5. That your joy and hope in God are the weapons you've got to fight with. He is so certain, David is, that he will return to worship God 
He even mentions the instrument he's going to use. That's how certain I am that I'm going to return to be, to be blessed, to be, to be uh, vindicated, to be defended by God. I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure I let you know that it's going to be on my guitar, which is basically what a liar is. If you've seen a picture of it, I mean, actually, the, the similarity to the guitar is quite stunning. So, hey, you didn't, know, you didn't know the Psalms mentioned guitars, did you? That's wild, isn't it? <laughs> and so, we should always remember that great deliverance is the mother of great music. Great deliverance is the mother of great music. The greatest music has been written by people who have gone through some of the deepest trials. And the man who is bored with God will not usually be interested in singing about him. If you want to make wine, you've got to crush grapes. And if you want stories and songs of deliverance that echo off these walls for generations, you will need to face affliction like a Christian and sing the songs of deliverance. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I'm going to start to wrap this up. I'm going to ask, how does David fight against his sense of being abandoned by God? And, Christian, how does God want you to fight against your sense that you've been abandoned by God the next time it comes round? His first strategy is to talk to God, right? Then I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy. So, second strategy is to remind himself which God we're talking about. Right? So, I will go to God, not just any God, God, my exceeding joy. And then he even says, uh, I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Right? Then what? Verse 5. He goes from talking to God to talking to his own soul. O my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Here we have a great example of perhaps the lost art of preaching to yourself. Okay? Dear saints, this is a skill that you should want to grow in as you are following Jesus. The skill of taking God's promises, repeating them to yourself, and as it were, drilling them down into your own heart. Because nobody talks to you more than you do. Right? So, why, why not aim that the voice in your head that's you, hopefully, <laughs> the voice inside your head that's you is speaking things that are true. When we sing God's words, you know, when we, when we sing in the sanctuary together, and especially I think um, when we sing in, like, in parts and stuff, you're, you're singing to each other, you're preaching to each other. And, and, and you're, you know, you're listening and you're, you're singing. And, and you're listening and you're singing. And so in this way, this is Colossians 3, right? Uh, that that by, uh, by singing songs together, that we would be encouraging one another, reminding each other of the truths of God. This is different, though. This is the spiritual discipline of talking to yourself. Of talking to your own soul. David looks in the mirror, so to speak. He looks in the mirror to see his own soul, as it, you know, so to speak, and starts talking to himself. Soul! <laughs> Why are you mad? <laughs> Why are you so upset? What are you mad about? Right? Trying to get... Now, let me... 
briefly address something, and especially let me talk perhaps to uh, two younger people in our congregation, right? I'm going to say teenagers, 20s, maybe young 30s. You have been, unless you've been aware of it, and you've kind of taken measures to do something about it, you've been catechized within a generation to believe that the best thing you can do is follow your heart and follow the impulses therein, and that the impulses in your heart of whatever kind of impulse you feel is what probably not only what you should do, but it's like what you're bound to do and you can do nothing else. Here's David who recognizes within himself and his own soul a wrong way of responding, a wrong way of thinking, a wrong way of reacting to what's around him, a wrong way of, of, of talking or, or, or thinking. And he says, I'm going to get my soul in order. Not, not, that, not that my soul and its impulses I have to just obey. It's not, I'm not a slave to my impulses. Rather, I'm going to address my soul and say, soul, get your act together. Now notice again, David starts with, Vindicate me, O Lord. And by the end of the psalm, I'm wrong. Okay? Both, both being possible, on, probably on different things. So, Vindicate me. Here's an area where I know I'm right. Down here in verse 5, I'm wrong. Oh, my soul, what are you doing? And so... Uh, so, so I might be right in my cause. My soul is wrong, though. My cause is right. Lord, vindicate me. But my despondency is, at the end of the day, incongruous with my God, my exceeding joy. So my cause might be right, but apparently my soul is wrong. So he talks to himself and says, soul, why are you mad? What is your hope in? What are you demanding? What are you bitter about? Lift up your eyes and hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. And our great hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what will steady and solidify our hearts in the midst of really hard times. When we cry out to God, because we are wondering, to put it mildly, God, why are you letting everything burn down? Why is crime increasing in our city? Why are so many unjust and deceitful men getting to teach a generation of children? Whether it's on social media or whatever else. How long, O oh Lord, will we go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In such moments, what your heart needs to hear again, because otherwise it's just going to drive you into uh, drive you into despair, right? I mean, it's what, it's what watching the, the news on TV does to you, right? It just drives you into despair. In such moments, we need to address our own souls. Not assume that every impulse we have is correct, let's just say. Our hearts need to hear again and again and again of the suffering servant who went to the cross, who, by the way, was truly forsaken by his father so that you could never again really be forsaken. I'm not saying you won't experience a sense, ask the question, wonder, sort of feel it deeply within your soul, but... But the promise of Jesus is, I will never leave you or forsake you. And He's already endured the forsakenness. There's none left for you. Jesus Christ put Himself under the whips and the nails and the mockery of deceitful and unjust men who said, if He's God, let Him come off the cross and save Himself. But the Father heard the cries of the Son 
And from heaven he said, I will vindicate him. And the Son of God bursted out of the tomb three days later, completely vindicated. And by faith in his death and resurrection, we are led by him into the very presence of God to sing and to hear God's word and to feast together and even to preach to ourselves on the way out. Hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in this God. Are you downcast? Are you weary? Are you tired of waiting? Preach to your soul this week. And if you can't find words, oh my goodness, there's this book right in the middle of your Bible built and put together to give you the words to preach to yourself. And so... In a way, what David invites us to do is to subject ourselves to a kind of ultimate reality check from our God who is not stingy with His promises. He has not held back the best of the feast from us. Rather, He is God, our God, our exceeding joy. In the name of Jesus, Amen. So, our Father... We ask for your help as we preach to ourselves, as we seek to know you. We ask again that you would send out your light and your truth on everyone here this morning, that, they, that these would be the things that lead us, that you would surround us with shouts of deliverance that speak a better word than lying and deceitful men. And Lord, that you would equip us to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is an impossible task. And so, Lord, I pray that you would root us so in the Word that we know how to preach to our own souls. Soul, love the Lord. Soul, love your neighbor. Grant that we would go out, Lord, trusting in you that all of the promises that you have given to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and so you will vindicate every single one of them. Renew our hope this morning in that. In Jesus' name, amen.